Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 5. To this point in the Gospel of John, we have encountered great joy. Joy at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Joy at Jesus gathering his disciples to himself. Joy at the wedding feast in Cana where Jesus performed sign one, turning water into wine, which kicked off Jesus' earthly ministry. After the water into wine in Cana of Galilee, Jesus headed south to Jerusalem and ran the money changers out of the temple, which again brought joy to the sight of many Jews in Jerusalem that false worship was being dealt with. John 3, we saw Jesus joyfully rebuke Nicodemus, sharing with him the gospel, which would ultimately lead to his salvation, we know, as we read all the way through the gospel of John. In John 4, Jesus heads north from Jerusalem into Samaria, you'll remember, and joyfully delivers salvation to the whole village of Sychar. John 4 ends joyfully with sign number two as Jesus gives physical and spiritual salvation to a royal official, his son, and his whole family. This is the great joy in John chapters 1 through 4. Amen. Yet Jesus' ministry, as you know well, will not end in joy but sorrow as Jesus will be crucified on the cross at Calvary. So how do we go from great ministry joy in chapters 1 through 4 by way of Jesus' delivery of salvation to the undeserving and the great confessions from the mouths of men about Jesus' deity? How do we go from all this great ministry joy to, in chapters 18 and 19, a crucified Messiah? Well, we arrive at a crucified Messiah by way of the vehicle is the hostility of the Jews. Jewish hatred of Jesus results in Jesus' death by crucifixion. Crucifixion is a result of Jewish hatred of the truth. Jesus will be crucified for telling the truth about his deity to the Jews in Jerusalem. Jesus most certainly did not hide his deity from anyone, nor did the Jews hide their hatred of him, both of which we see in John chapter 5. Leon Morris says, at John chapter 5, we see the emergence of an implacable hostility. R.C. Sproul says at John 5, John is introducing the winds of hostility that are starting to blow from the hierarchy of the Jewish establishment against Jesus. You'd think that Jesus came to bring peace on earth and would have great success in bringing peace on earth if this was his desire. Isn't that what we love to sing this time of year? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. But friends, you should know very well that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Many Christians recoil in horror at the thought of hostility, especially here in America where we relatively live at peace with all men and pursue life, liberty, and the American tradition of happiness, whatever that is for you. But brothers and sisters, we can't be so naive when it comes to hostility. We are seeing a satanic level of hatred and hostility right now on American college campuses and across our nation being directed at Jews for their ethnicity. How long do you think it will take before the same level of hostility, the exact same level and more, is directed 
at Christians. This world is hostile to all of God's plans and promises for Jews and Christians, especially is this world hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus warned his disciples and all of his followers in John 15, 20, saying, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That might not seem like a happy time Christmas thought, but let it soak in because it's all part of what Jesus wants to do in making you Christians. And so we ask, what on earth could cause men to be so hostile toward Jesus that they would ultimately crucify him? Well, we find the answer in John 5. When you want the answer for hostility, turn to John 5. When you want to know something about Jesus' deity, the full force of his person, Turn to John 5, because it's at John 5 where you learn about Jesus' deity that you find the greatest hostility. In John 5, Jesus' supernatural Sabbath day healing of a 38-year paralytic, combined with Jesus' supreme honesty regarding his deity, results in immense Jewish hatred and hostility toward Jesus. The Jews understand Jesus with great clarity. Jesus is claiming to be God's son and therefore equal to God. Amazingly, Jewish hostility is exactly what Jesus planned for and expected and even needs to be happening, which we will see as we read through John 5, reading verses 1 through 18. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Please notice I'm skipping over the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 and sharing with you verse 5. And a man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been sick a long time, He said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his mat and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, well, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This man went away and disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. I would hope that you understand, Jesus wants this confrontation and the hostility, 
because Jesus wants to heal the sick and declare his deity and arouse the unrighteous anger of the Jews so that in just over a year's time, these people and their hostility will crucify him. He wants this. He's creating this. No, Jesus isn't crazy, friends. He is highly purposeful and intentional, which is exactly what we see in John 5, in this visit to Jerusalem. Better still, we see that Jesus has no desire to hide his deity from men. Rather, he came to bless men by sharing the full force and strength of his deity in his healings and in his words. What's amazing and even outrageous is that Jesus' honesty and healing ministry result in the hatred and hostility of the Jews. Jesus is not naive about the Jews. He's sovereign over them. And I can't have you miss the fact that Jesus wants, needs, breeds, feeds the hostility of the Jews by speaking truth and healing the lame. In John 5, Jesus has a plan for building up Jewish hostility, which can be divided into two phases. Phase one of Jesus' Jewish hostility plan is Jesus' deliberate triggering in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 5. Now, personally, I don't like the word triggering, but here it fits very perfectly, doesn't it? Phase 1 of Jesus' plan for building up Jewish hostility is Jesus' deliberate triggering, verses 1 through 9. The second phase is Jesus' deity trumpeting, Jesus' deity trumpeting in verses 10 through 47. You see those two bullet points in your notes, these two phases of building up Jewish hostility that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to enact. John 5 is preparatory work for the crucifixion of Messiah. The Jews need to hear the truth of Jesus' words and see the power of his works in order to know with certainty the guy is claiming to be God's son. This will arouse the mountain of anger in the hearts of the sinful Jews required for them to press for his execution. And so, knowing full well that the Jews in Jerusalem have zero tolerance of the truth of Jesus' deity, we come to phase one in Jesus' Jewish hostility plan in verses one through nine. Phase one is Jesus' deliberate triggering of the Jews. We read in John 5, 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry traveling has a particular cadence to it as he comes and goes according to the divine plan of his glory and man's redemption. After the joy of ministry success and the delivery of salvation in Galilee and Samaria, Jesus returns in John here a second time to Jerusalem. John is very good at telling us the names of the feast that Jesus attends in Jerusalem, except for this one. This feast is left nameless, and D.A. Carson says that the feast in John 5 is not named is probably because the material in John 5 is not meant to be thematically related to a feast. So we have a nameless feast at which Jesus has determined in eternity past to make an appearance in order to reveal his deity which he will excite, he will use to excite Jewish anger against him. The question for us would be, how is Jesus going to share his equality with God and stir up Jewish anger? What will it take to both communicate the deity 
of Jesus and at the same time increase the hostility of the Jews. Jesus doesn't bring with him a legion of loyal followers armed to the teeth with swords ready for battle. He doesn't hold a political rally at the Temple Mount on January 6th. That's a joke. He doesn't heal every single person of all of their physical afflictions to curry favor with the people as if he was a politician seeking grassroots support. He doesn't do these things. Jesus is not in the business of doing unrighteousness, but righteousness. For this reason, Jesus finds his way to the lame and needy in Jerusalem, which we read in John 5, 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Bethesda is a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning house of outpouring or house of mercy. Some of your Bibles might say Bethsaida. Either way, the Bethesda pool was located north of the north wall of the Temple Mount and frequented by the sick, the lame, and sadly, the superstitious. John MacArthur says the pool was apparently fed by an intermittent spring. And people imagined that its waters had healing powers. Ancient sources indicate that the water in the pool had a reddish tint from the minerals that were in it. Brothers and sisters, the, the scope of the Jewish superstition about the healing powers of the Bethesda waters is given to us in brackets in verses 3b through 4, where we have a marginal note that was added to the text that tells us that the lame and the sick were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then was first after the stirring up of the waters stepped in was made well from whatever sickness with which he was afflicted. I want you to think about this text with me for a second. When you come to a text in brackets, you are dealing with information added to the original account of the author and you have to do some homework and you have to ask some important questions of the text. Are these the words of the Apostle John? Regardless of what information they yield to you, regardless of how passionately you may feel about them, regardless of how factual they may or may not be, the question you have to ask is, is that what John wrote? That's what you have to ask of the text in brackets. Is that what John wrote? Did John believe that an angel of the Lord stirred up the waters? Did John believe that? Did John believe the first to step into the water was made well? Is this bracketed portion of Scripture representative of the Apostle John's theology? The answer to all of these questions is no. John MacArthur says the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts omit the last phrase of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Despite its brevity, says MacArthur, this omitted section contains more than half a dozen words or phrases foreign to John's writings, including three words not found anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament. MacArthur says these facts indicate that the section was not part of John's original account. Both the internal and external evidence reveal that the bracketed text was added. Internally, with words that are inconsistent with John's writing, and healing theology that is entirely in and of itself contradictory. Look at verse 4, and you tell me that that's not contradictory. 
Externally, we have manuscript evidence that clearly indicate that the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 were added into the text of John's gospel. Now, here is how this happens. A curious scribe wrote a note in the margin of a manuscript that he had translated. And years later, another scribe added the marginal note of the previous scribe. He added the marginal note into the body of the text. Even though this bracketed text may accurately represent, <clears throat> now I'm saying accurately from their perspective, not mine. The bracketed text may accurately represent the superstition of the sick and lame Jews in Jerusalem. These are not the thoughts, words, or theology of the Apostle John. Leon Morris says, the manuscript evidence makes it certain that this is no part of the original gospel. The most critical point is the contradictory healing theology inside of the brackets. The Apostle John was not himself superstitious about miracles and healings and would never suggest that an angel of the Lord established a graceless, performance-based mineral water healing system. John would never suggest that. The Apostle John believed in grace-based healing, not performance-based healing. You understand the difference, right? The Apostle John believes that miracles and healings happen exclusively by the grace of God, not by being the first person to enter a pool of stirred-up mineral water. As a result, the bracketed text is not part of the original. The Apostle John was not superstitious about the healing powers of Bethesda's waters, but sadly, sadly, the lame and the sick in Jerusalem were. Worse still, their religious leaders were. And the religious leaders gave consent to the pursuit of the lame and the weak and the sick. They gave pursuit of this graceless performance-based healing, and evidently, those religious leaders never came and offered anyone the help required to receive the performance-driven healing in which they all wickedly and sadly believed. This is so sad. You see, on the one hand, these Jews were trapped in a superstitious, works-based system of physical healing which never truly healed anyone. And on the other hand, they like this system because the healing power is within their control and ability in so much that you have the speed to be the first into the pool. This is disgusting. This is hurtful. This is first century. This is the course of man for 6,500 years. Find a way in your own strength to heal yourself. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Friends, superstitious, man-centered theology is everywhere, even today. You'll be at holiday parties here soon with your family and friends. Many of your family and friends are probably Roman Catholic. They're doing the same thing as this 38-year paralytic. They have the same superstitious, man-centered theology. It's a total failure. Whether they're Roman Catholics whether they're Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, 
Buddhists, Muslims, it doesn't make a bit of difference. The difference between the Christianity that I'm preaching, that John MacArthur preaches, that R.C. Sproul and Piper and all the names, all these men are preaching for years, 2,000 years. We are preaching a gospel that is monergistic, a gospel that says God must be the giver of grace, and He is. A gospel that says you can't do anything in your own strength. But all the other religions that I just named a second ago, they teach their adherents that you have the strength to fix you, that you have the strength to make you right with God. That's despicable. It's disgusting. It's hurtful. It's not able to save. Into this superstitious, graceless, performance-based, bad theology at the Pool of Bethesda walks a man named Truth 2,000 years ago. Jesus walks into this pool. He walks into this superstition. He walks into this bad theology. He walks into these prideful people that think that they have the ability to fix and heal themselves. The Apostle John next tells us about one particular sick man among the many who are at the healing pools on whom Jesus has set his sight. Not for anything this man has done in and of himself. In fact, just in spite of that. John reports in 5 verse 5. And a man was there who had been sick for 38 years. This critical detail, 38 years, sheds lights on the, on the man's desire to be healed. This detail is a window into the patterns and habits and years of bad theology that consume this man's mind. It's important to know that this affliction was not recent but long-standing, and even as we understand from the later text, this is a sinful affliction. Sin is abiding on him even still. This man is conditioned at this point to his disability. So much is he conditioned to living his disabled life you have to wonder, does he find benefit in his disability? Sadly, some people do find benefit in their disability. Some people find comfort in not working but receiving help. Some people find it easier to sit on a street corner asking for money than to do the work required to support themselves. Some people plead with others for just enough money and food to exist. Is this sick man sinfully content in his disability? R.C. Sproul says, it's possible that this man had become satisfied in his state of inertia, having learned to depend on others to tend to his needs. I wonder if that may be one of the reasons why he hasn't made it down into the pool. Maybe he allows people to slide ahead of him. Our curiosity and speculation about the man's 38-year disability are driven by Jesus' choice of him and all of the other, from and over the top of all of the others at the pool of Bethesda, and what Jesus ultimately asks the man. Of all the people to pull out of superstitious, man-centered healing and into supernatural, Messiah, grace-driven healing, why pull this guy from the one to the other? Well, the answer, friends, is Jesus' choice to the glory of God. That's the answer. Why this guy? Why this guy? Answer, the glory of God. That's why this guy. Jesus chooses this guy for the glory of God. D.A. Carson says, this one is picked out by Jesus from amongst the many other invalids. The sovereign initiative is with Jesus, 
No reason is given for his choice. But there is a supreme reason for his choice. Friends, why is this man chosen? The answer is the glory of God in the events that will follow. That's why he's chosen. He's chosen for what will happen next. Don't miss this. Because this man is being chosen as a foil. He's a setup guy. The choice of this man sets the stage for the events that follow, for the platform that he can create for Jesus to stand on his deity pulpit and preach his own sovereignty. That's why this man is chosen, for Jesus to preach his sovereignty. He's no different than Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, The choice of this man is no different. The sick man will be given the grace of Jesus' supernatural physical healing instantaneously, and he will prove at the same time that he has zero desire to be healed spiritually from all of his many besetting sins. Jesus cannot pick anyone for this healing who will be spiritually saved, given second spiritual birth, and end up in heaven with him forever. He can't pick the elect. This is not the job or the choice, the time to choose one of the predestined for salvation. They're exempt from this choice at this moment because they, the elect, the redeemed, those who would be given second birth, would respond to Jesus' grace righteously. This man, after Jesus' choice of him, responds unrighteously. The choice of this man is just like the choice of Judas Iscariot, because both men were chosen for the purpose of betraying Jesus to the authorities. The sovereign initiative is with Jesus. The sovereign initiative is with Jesus' choice of this man, and it sets the stage for Jesus' deliberate triggering of Jewish hostility. John presents the sovereignty of Jesus' choice of this man, this 38-year paralytic, when he reports in John 5, 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been sick a long time, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And at first glance, this is an odd question. Why is Jesus asking a disabled man who is clearly sitting at the healing waters of Bethesda with many other disabled people for the very purpose of receiving a miraculous healing, why is Jesus asking this guy if he wants to get well? It's obvious he wants to get well. Of course he wants to get physically well. Jesus' question at first seems very odd. John MacArthur says, the Lord's question seems strange, but Jesus never engaged in flippant idle conversations, says MacArthur. All of Jesus' words are extremely intentional, and the same is true here. Jesus' words are not odd at all. In fact, Jesus' words are the epitome of grace. Jesus' question is gracious now and eternally. Let's talk about His grace being now and eternal. The now grace of Jesus' question is in the fact that Jesus is present and interested in the life of a sick man, which is grace that the religious leaders in Jerusalem have never extended to him. Jesus' now grace 
not only asks about the desire of the man, but goes far further as Jesus is the one who has the ability to satisfy and deliver the man's deepest wishes and most desperate yearnings. We're talking about a now grace that is a powerful grace. Jesus' now grace is not capable of asking and walking away from the man as if Jesus doesn't care at all. Jesus will grace the man in power right now. That's why he's asking. Better still, loaded in Jesus' question is Jesus' eternal grace, which can meet the man's most desperate need, the need for atonement of his sins, a clear conscience before God, redemption and justification in the sight of a holy God. Jesus' question is loaded with eternal grace. If the man's heart is begging for internal spiritual healing because of the conviction of his sins, if the Holy Spirit was working that inside of his heart, if the Father in heaven was drawing him spiritually to Jesus for remission of his sins, John MacArthur says about Jesus' question, that it secured the man's full attention, focused on his need, offered him healing, and communicated to the man the depth of Christ's love and concern. Jesus' question is not odd at all. Jesus' question is all grace. It is now grace, and in this question is eternal grace. I didn't say that Jesus gives the man eternal grace. I said that the eternal grace of Jesus is loaded in the question. What does the man do with the question, right? That's what we have to ask. What does the man do with the question? The question was floated to him. What does he do with it? Well, next we need to look at the man's response to Jesus' incredibly grace-filled question. But before we do, let's reflect on Jesus' question for ourselves for a moment. What must we learn about Jesus' question? How must Jesus' gracious question impact our lives? Well, first... Jesus' question must make us askers of great questions. When we ask questions of others, we are inviting others to talk, which by necessity means that we must be quiet and listen, and this is a wonderful thing, especially during the holidays. When you use your mouth to communicate this much so that your ears can listen to someone else talk this much, that's a wonderful thing. It proportionally makes sense of your face. Good questions ask for involvement in the lives of others for the purpose of listening, caring, concern, service, and help, both physical and spiritual. Faithful Christians follow Jesus' lead by knowing to ask good questions. Second, Jesus' question offers unmerited favor and grace to a man who never knew Jesus, never knew him, just dumped his grace right on him. Is this what you do with the grace that's inside of your heart from Jesus? Do you back it up like a dump truck and flip the gate on top of someone's head who's totally unexpected? Do we give ourselves over to joyfully lavishing the grace of Christ on the undeserving? Along these lines, I had a great question asked of me earlier this week. I was asked, is there anyone at church who does not have a place to go to celebrate Christmas? And that's a great question. And I would charge you, family and friends of Community Bible Church, to ask this question of the neighbors which you are seated to in this service and in your community groups. 
Make sure that none of those attending CBC go without fellowship as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Jesus gave us this example of gracious question asking. We have every reason to do the same. How was Jesus' gracious question received by this man? How did the 38-year paralytic respond to Jesus' grace? John reports for us in John 5, 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now notice that we have all that we need to know about the superstitious healing theology of the Bethesda pools right here in verse 7 in John's reporting of the sick man's response to Jesus, which confirms the words, some of the words, in verses 3 and 4 as it relates to the superstition of the people at the pools. Just notice that first so that in your mind you can accurately take verses, the portion of verse 3 and all of verse 4 and really just, you don't need that. It's extra information, but it's not part of the text. Now, as far as his answer, what do you make of this answer from the man? Is this a good answer or a bad answer? Why would it be a good answer? Why would it be a bad answer? How often do you ask good questions and get a defensive answer in return? Because that's what this is. This is a defensive answer. Jesus didn't ask, why aren't you healed already? He didn't ask him that. His question didn't put the man on the defensive about his healing or lack of healing. But that's how the man thinks. He thinks defensively. He thinks continually about justifying his behavior to other people, which means that he's a bit of a people pleaser who isn't confident in his own skin with his own thoughts, decisions, and actions. So he does what people pleasers are prone to doing, defense. In order to look good and be pleasing to Jesus' sight in this moment, whom he doesn't even know, the sick man rails against two kinds of neighbors that he has. He rails against two kinds of neighbors, defensively posturing and railing against two of his neighbors. He has two kinds of neighbors. He has no-help neighbors who don't care enough to place him in the water when it is stirred up, and he also has no-grace neighbors who selfishly use their slightly more able bodies to cut him off and get into the coveted, angelic, stirred-up mineral water first. His response is not focused on his own failings as much as it is focused on the failures of others, the sinfulness of others, the selfishness and greed of others. And this is just typical sinful behavior, is it not? Blaming others for your problems, which goes all the way back to, oh, I don't know, maybe Genesis 3? The sick man's response to Jesus' gracious question is a total failure of an answer. The sick man doesn't know grace. He hasn't received grace. He hasn't given grace. He is a product of his own graceless, superstitious theological system of works. I'll say that again because you, you need to think about this guy in these terms. He is operating as the perfect product of his own graceless, superstitious theological system of works. What you believe affects how you behave. 
That's what this man proves for us. This man fully embraces performance-based healing, and yet he can't see the hypocrisy he has created because of what he believes. Do you see the hypocrisy? Well, let me explain it to you. Here's the hypocrisy in his own theology. He blames the more able body for his failed healing when all they were doing was following the rules of the failed superstition that they all agreed to believe in. I hope you see this. He, they're doing nothing wrong according to what they all believe. He's frustrated that the more able-bodied get down into the angel-stirred water more quickly than he can, but he is not himself frustrated with his own superstitious, contradictory belief system. And to me, this is amazing. This is amazing. He is angry at people when he should be angry at his own bad theology. Tell that to your relative when they come over for Christmas. <laughs> you know, the challenge with that and saying that to you guys today is that some of you are doing this today. Some of you are doing this today. Some of you are frustrated with other people as if other people are your biggest problems in this life be that a drunk father or an abusive mother or a drug addict sister or daughter. But their behavior has nothing to do with your ability to believe Jesus' words. I'll say that again. The behavior of others has nothing to do with your ability to believe Jesus' words, which have the ability to heal your soul. Your healing and salvation from your biggest problems in life have nothing to do with other people as if the grace of Jesus needs to overcome other people before it can attack you. Not a chance, friends. The, the grace of Jesus need only overcome your heart right now, today, this very moment for you to find ultimate spiritual healing See, those other people in your lives that afflict you, they're not here. They're not here to stop this from happening, to stop Jesus' words going from his word, from my mouth, into your heart, all in the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming you from the inside. Those other people aren't here. They can't stop that from happening. Ultimate spiritual healing is available today in Jesus' words. And that's what the man is missing. He's missing ultimate spiritual healing. It's standing in front of him. He's unwilling to believe anything other than what he has known and believed in for 38 years, that healing is a gift that must be grasped in his own strength. Healing's right there. I just need to be faster He's unwilling to understand that the best healing is healing driven by grace. Blinded by his graceless, superstitious, physical healing theology, he doesn't care to know people. Who are you, sir? Why are you asking me about my needs? Why are you asking me about my healing? Can you help me? How can you help me, sir? Not interested. John MacArthur says the man failed to grasp the weight of Jesus' offer. 
His only concern was finding a way to be the first one into the pool when the water began stirring. His expectation of what Jesus could do for him were limited to what he believed was possible. D.A. Carson notes, this invalid is the painful opposite of everything that characterizes the wonderful character in John 9. You want a parallel story that ends on a positive note? Leave John 5 and turn and read John 9. Yet what does this self-righteous, superstitious believer in works-based salvation get from Jesus? What is this man who's so prideful and can't see to ask a question of Jesus? What does he get from Jesus? In a word, in a word, what does the man get from Jesus? What does he get next? Grace. John reports in John 5.8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. This is the power of Jesus' grace. Instantaneously, this man's physical health is fully restored. And what this screams to you is that Jesus is sovereign over every atomic particle in this man's being. John MacArthur says, just as Jesus spoke and the world was created, so also his words had the power to create a new body. This demands our attention yet again to the sovereignty and the power in Jesus' words. We saw this in John 4 when the royal official's son was healed in the seventh hour, which was exactly when Jesus spoke the word. This man's healing has been frustrated by th- for 38 years, and in an instant, his healing was finished by Jesus' words. Consider the power in Jesus' words. At the command to get up, his healing was perfected by Jesus. He had all the strength required to obey, and he had no need to walk down into the waters of the pool ever again. Jesus' power in his words was there to graciously heal whomever he desires And it is remarkably consistent, Jesus' words and power are, from the royal official's son to this paralytic, to the man born blind, to Lazarus being raised from the dead, Jesus' words have grace, creativity, instantaneous healing power. Notice as well, the power in Jesus' words is not based on the faith of the one who receives the grace. The power in Jesus' words is not based on the faith of the one receiving his grace. The power of Jesus' words is inherent in Jesus' words, regardless of the faith of the one who is graced, which means that this text stands in sharp opposition to all the so-called faith healers of the last 2,000 years who trick people into believing if you're not healed, it's because you have weak faith. This story shows us that physical healing can be given to those with zero faith. John MacArthur makes this observation saying, unlike many alleged modern healings, Jesus' healings were complete and instantaneous with or without faith. One of the cruelest lies of contemporary faith healers, he says, is that the people they fail to heal are guilty of sinful unbelief, a lack of faith, or a negative confession. In contrast, says MacArthur, those whom Jesus healed did not always manifest faith beforehand. The sick man in John 5 is not a believer in Jesus, nor will he ever be a believer in Jesus. And yet we read in John 5, 9, and immediately the man became well and picked up his mat and began to walk. Leon Morris says, 
The cure is instantaneous and complete. D.A. Carson says, the healed individual was not staggering off in ambiguous health, but leaving with the bodily strength necessary to carry his mat. C.K. Barrett says, just as the 38 years proves the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed and the walking prove the completeness of the cure. The man picked up his mat and began to walk as if he'd never been sick for a minute. Jesus' words, full of grace and power, have perfectly healed the 38-year lame man. This is sign number three of seven in John's gospel. As we walk through John's gospel, I will share with you the seven signs. This is number three. John shares signs and gives us his purpose statement in John 20, 31, saying, I've shared these signs with you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. See the sign. Know Jesus is sovereign. Know Jesus is God. And you're thinking, at this point in our text, How great, how awesome is this? Immediately the man became well, picked up his mat and walked. What a blessing. And then you read the rest of verse 9, which says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. And you say to yourself, so what? Big whoop. What's this here for? How can the day of the healing matter at all? Brothers and sisters, with these words, John is telling us that Jesus deliberately triggered the hostility of the Jews on this day. This Sabbath day fact is not incidental or inconsequential to the activities in John chapter 5. It's central. It's not as if Jesus accidentally chose to heal this lame man on Saturday To the contrary, this Sabbath healing was highly intentional on Jesus' part in order to elicit out of the Jews the hatred and hostility that already existed in their hearts toward him. He will use their legalistic system of religion against them. John MacArthur says, John's seemingly incidental note that the healing took place on the Sabbath is in reality the key to this incident. It sets the stage for the open hostility that the Jewish authorities manifested toward Christ. The stage is now set for confrontation, hostility, legalism, anger, hatred, because Jesus deliberately chose to heal a sick man on Saturday, thereby triggering maximum hostility in the Jews. And you should ask why. Legitimately, you should ask why. Why would you do this, Jesus? Why did Jesus choose Saturday? If Saturday is going to be a problem to the Jews, and Jesus knows their hostility, and he knows their regulations, then why not live at peace with all men? Shouldn't you just obey the ruling authorities? Shouldn't you just go along with their mandates and their requests? If they say this is the program, shouldn't you just stick with the program? You don't want to be unloving to your neighbor, right? Why does Jesus deliberately trigger Jewish hostility? 
when he knew that they would be triggered? Why did he go this route? This brings us to phase two in Jesus' plan to build up Jewish hostility. The purpose phase of the plan. Phase number two, Jesus' deity trumpeting. Jesus' deity trumpeting. Pull out the trumpet and sound the praise of the king. We're going to know something about Jesus by the time this chapter is over. He has set the stage for his own trumpeting. The second phase in Jesus' Jewish hostility plan in verses 10 through 47. After sign number three, the healing of the 38-year paralytic, the door is open and the road is paved for the proclamation of Jesus' deity. In the rest of John chapter 5, John reports eight revelations of Jesus' deity that must result in both hostility and honor. Eight revelations of Jesus' deity that must result in hostility and honor. John proclaims eight attributes of Jesus' deity that make him identical to his father. And that's going to make some people angry. What eight attributes of Jesus' deity identify him as God's son, resulting in honor and hostility? In your notes, you have a list of eight attributes. I've intentionally left them blank. Let's begin with number one. Jesus shares with his father the first of eight attributes of Jesus' deity identical to his father in verses 10 through 15. Number one, identical sovereignty. Jesus is standing on his soapbox, on his deity soapbox, teaching the Jews that he is God. It begins with Jesus trumpeting his sovereignty. He is sovereign over creation, just like his father. We know that Jesus is sovereign over all of creation from John chapter 2, water into wine in Cana of Galilee. Sign number 2 in John 4, the healing of the royal official's son from death. Sign 3, the 38-year paralytic was healed in John 5. Repeatedly, the apostles speak of Jesus' sovereign power over every atomic particle in the universe. And though we don't get to hear from Jesus in person today, through the apostles' words, we have Jesus with us today. We have his word. And Jesus expects you to trust his sovereign power revealed in his word. You don't need to see Jesus. You don't need to hear him audibly. You didn't need to be there two years ago. You're holding a Bible. You're holding Jesus' words. And these words are speaking to you. These words. There's power in the words of Jesus. He expects us to trust his sovereign power revealed in his word. Who will tell the Jewish religious elites, however, in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago about Jesus' sovereignty as it relates to the 38-year paralytic? When will they get the message? Well, initially, Jesus leaves the task of revealing his sovereignty to the freshly healed paralytic. Jesus is well pleased to have sinful men attest to and trumpet his deity and sovereignty over to other sinful men. 
Instead of Jesus racing off to the Jews himself to show them his sovereign power over the sick and lame in their city, Jesus is content to let the Jews hear from the healed paralytic himself, which only further stirs up Jewish hostility against Jesus. And we see that as we come to verse 10, which says, So the Jews were saying to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. On its face, this is absurd. Their eyes are so critical and self-serving to their man-made law that they express zero interest in the fact that this man, who's been lame in their city for 38 years, is now walking and carrying his mat. They don't care about that. They don't care about the miracle. They care about their rules. They don't care about your dying father in the hospital. They care about their mask mandate. They care about their rules. This is despicable. Where is their concern for hurting people who have been healed or their man-made legalistic traditions and rules? R.C. Sproul says, instead of responding to the miracle of his healing with joy and praise to God, they said, why are you carrying your bed? Sproul responds, how wicked and deceitful is the human heart? This is grotesque behavior from the Jewish religious elites. They've no doubt grabbed hold of the words of Yahweh from Jeremiah 17, 21 and stripped them out of their context and intent in order to create extra legalistic burdens on the people in Jerusalem. Like some people take Romans 13, 1 and twist that around to wield the power of the government over the church. Yahweh says in Jeremiah 17, 21, Take care of yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Brothers and sisters, it's not as if the 38-year paralytic had just created a job for himself, created work for himself as some kind of Jerusalem Uber mat delivery guy. He's not carrying mats to make a profit on this day after just being healed. The fact that he's carrying his mat is proof that the miracle was done to a sick man in Jerusalem. The lame are being supernaturally restored in Jerusalem. This should make every one of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews recall from Scripture the promises of Yahweh to send Messiah, to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and make the lame leap like the deer. But instead, John reports their legalism has consumed them, and it has consumed the 38-year paralytic as well, as we read in John 5.11. He answered the Jews and said to them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He's saying to them, brothers, I have an excuse for breaking our rules. I don't want to be breaking our precious rules. I'm not a rule breaker. But the guy who healed me, that guy. He's the rule breaker. And here we find the healed man is just as much of a legalist as the Jews that he reports to. D.A. Carson says the man defends himself by blaming the one who told it to him, who told him to do it. Leon Morris says the man was not of the stuff of which heroes are made. R.C. Sproul says the healed man simply passed the buck. I tell you, he's a sellout. He's a tattletale. And for my friends who come from New York, we know that he's a rat. Is he really a rat? Is he a total snitch? 
who will turn in the guy who healed him to avoid even the appearance of rule-breaking on the Sabbath? Yes, friends, he's a rat. And the Jews here, they know it. We read in verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Even fully healed, the Jews could see the cowardice, people-pleasing legalism in the heart of this man. When they pressed for a name, the healed man was entirely ready to give it up. But he is so shallow, so self-focused, so self-serving, he didn't even know the name of the man who had healed him. Didn't get that when the healing happened. How is it that neither the Jews nor the healed man are rejoicing in this moment? How is it that their only concern is obedience to overbearing and absurd rules of men? Recently, a group of us watched The Essential Church, and and again, I was dumbfounded to be taken back to 2020 and 2021 and at how gullible men are at embracing physical world solution when the spiritual world solution is so much more peaceable, freeing, joyful, respectful, gracious, and God-glorifying. At the same time, what have we come to understand about men as it relates to John 5 and COVID-19? We know this. Sinful men enjoy abusing authority that doesn't belong to them. We know that. Legalists love to enslave others through laws that limit and restrict, quote, undesirable behavior, which is entirely subjective. And that is what is happening here. The Jews truly believe it is not desirable for people to be healed in violation of the law of the Sabbath. They believe it is not desirable for Jesus to display his sovereignty by saving people on Saturday. But at this moment of the story, the Jews don't know that it was Jesus who sovereignly healed the 38-year-old paralytic. And just as Jesus sovereignly found the man the first time to give him the healing, so too Jesus must find the man again a second time so that the man gets his name. This is how Jewish hostility will be fanned full into flames of burning rage against Jesus. When Jesus sovereignly finds the man a second time and gets him his name so he can go tattle and make sure that the guys know that he's a good little legalist. We read in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. I tell you, sovereignly, Jesus found this man again in the temple. Sovereignly, Jesus acknowledges the man has been made physically well, while at the same time, Jesus tells him to sin no more. Sovereignly, Jesus tells him that his 38-year sickness was the result of his sinning. And except that he stops sinning, he runs the risk of having a worse sickness come upon him. Sovereignly, Jesus has armed him with all the information needed to excite maximum hatred and hostility in the hearts of the Jews against Jesus. And sovereignly, Jesus knows the physically healed legalist will quickly report him to the authorities perfectly on time according to Jesus' divine eternal plan. 
Jesus' sovereignty is all over this conversation and the healing of this man on the Sabbath. Leon Morris says, stop sinning implies that the man has sinned and continues in his sin. Jesus enjoins him to break with it and to be reconciled to God. And so real quick, I want to address this idea of sin and suffering, sorrows. Many will ask, does God punish people with sickness for their sins? Is it the case that the blind and the lame have received from God punishment for sins previously committed? Here's what I want you to know about sickness, ailments, and afflictions. Number one, some instances of suffering are absolutely the direct result of specific sins. You sin, there's a consequence. Sometimes that is intense suffering. Second, I would have you know, Many instances, and I would even say most instances of suffering, are the result of living in a fallen, sin-sick, cursed world. You're going to face suffering here on this earth in one fashion or another. Third, I would have you know, all suffering is known to God and used by God for God's glory and for the good of the afflicted. If you are suffering affliction today, your affliction is for your good and God's glory. And if that sentence is hurtful to you, please don't leave here today without talking with me so I can explain this further to you. But I believe I have questions here that might help you understand that your suffering today is for your good and God's glory. The length of your suffering is not at all an indication of your sinfulness, your lacking of morality or pursuit of Christ, nor is it a result or directly correlated to God's anger towards you. These aren't true. The ultimate question with any amount of suffering that would befall any one of us is this. While suffering, do you worship Jesus? While suffering, do you seek to know Jesus? to know him by name, to know his character, to know his deity. While suffering, do you find comfort in the fact that Jesus knows a thing or two about suffering? While suffering, do you consider your sufferings light, momentary afflictions as you know Jesus' suffering has purchased your redemption, the forgiveness of your sins on the cross, and that you will be restored and headed to heaven both physically and spiritually united with Christ forever. While physically suffering, do you find that you are spiritually being strengthened in this life as you come to know the sovereign power of Jesus and his love and comfort as they wash over you, helping you to heal your sin-sick soul? The paralytic in our story does not believe that his soul is sick nor that his sins are worthy of eternal punishment. The paralytic in our story believed that his ability to keep the law would get him to heaven. He is a legalist that did not rejoice in Jesus' physical salvation of his body, nor would he ever rejoice in Jesus' spiritual salvation of his soul. But his healing gives Jesus a glorious platform to preach Jesus' deity. This healed paralytic is a proud legalistic man who did not appreciate the fact that his healing by Jesus came on Saturday. He proves the depth of his sinfulness and depravity in verse 15 where we read, the man went away and disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The Jews now know that Jesus is sovereign just like God the Father. 
Jesus made sure to have the healed paralytic be the voice to trumpet his sovereign deity to the religious elite in Jerusalem for the purpose of arousing their hostility, hatred, and anger against him. And friend, you must understand, this is all orchestrated by Jesus. Jesus operates with sovereign control over men just like his father. The 38-year paralytic and the Jews are being used by Jesus because Jesus knows exactly who they are and how they love their legalism more than they love grace and truth. Jesus has created the right atmosphere from which to preach his deity. As you consider Jesus' return trip to Jerusalem, supernatural sign number three, the hostility of the Jews on the Sabbath healing, ask yourself the question, is this all preparatory for Jesus' crucifixion? Is Jesus so sovereignly in control that by righteously healing a sick man, he can arouse the right amount of Jewish hostility today that will result in his crucifixion just over a year later? If Jesus is sovereign over all these details in his own life and the lives of all those he's affecting in Jerusalem, is he sovereign over the details of your life today? Friend, what is the answer to that question? The text makes it abundantly clear. Jesus is sovereign over your life. Every detail. Jesus is sovereignly in control over all of the details of all of our lives. And my hope is that you see it. My hope is that you rejoice in Jesus' sovereignty. My hope is that you rejoice that Jesus is so sovereign. He not only has the ability to heal our physical sicknesses, but most importantly, he has the ability to heal our spiritually sick souls. The task of your life is clear. Don't be a legalist like the healed man and the Jews. Don't be hostile to Jesus' healing power. Don't hate the fact that Jesus is the sovereign healer and redeemer of humanity. Don't seek the physical when the spiritual is your greatest need. Instead, rejoice in Jesus' deity, that Jesus shares identical sovereignty with his Father. Rejoice in his promises. Listen for Jesus' healing words. Obey Jesus' healing commands. Worship Jesus as sovereign Lord and Savior. And make it your job to trumpet the sovereign power of Jesus' deity. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We rejoice in the work that Jesus wants to do in and among us at Community Bible Church, to make a church out of us, to glorify himself that we are his body. And so thank you for drawing the saints and calling them and safely guiding them through the snowy roads to be here this morning. We praise you for all of the work that you're doing in our lives. And I, I pray for those among this congregation who are suffering. If you choose to lift their affliction today, do it. And if you don't, for your glory, that's well with our souls. You are so good. You've proven that in John 5. Let us rejoice as you preach your deity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.